I'm Young Haseo. Welcome to Afternoon of Delight, where Leah, Amy, and Megan, three best-selling American novelists who explore the wonderfully wacky world of K-romance through a writer's lens. We fangirl over characters, debate our favorite tropes, and nerd out through K-drama deep dives. Expect a few K-pop and K-skincare recs for a good measure, because why not ride the hell you wave all the way to shore? So grab some tech bulky and listen to your favorite unis. So this is podcast number two. How did we feel about podcast number one, everyone? It was a lot of fun, and it's great to see everyone back this week for a round two. And Megan, before we start, we've got you up here on the video, and we're noticing that you're a little puffy-eyed. Do you want to talk to that? <laughs> so I made the mistake of watching the last episode of Goblin. So it's Guardian, the Great and Lonely God, right? That's like the fool. And that was maybe a bad idea to watch it right before this podcast because I cried on and off the whole hour and 15 minutes. But I will, I can confidently say, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a future podcast, that it is five out of five. I loved it. I love the characters. I love the story. And I almost want to watch it all over again, even though it made me bawl my eyes out. And I look puffy and terrible right now. Good thing we're friends. <laughs> so I'm glad you guys told me to watch it. Now that we've all watched Goblin and loved it, you can bet that we are going to be talking about Goblin in an upcoming show. So don't forget to click subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Afternoon of Delight Podcast to find out all of our upcoming episodes. All right. Well, let's dive into today's episode. So today we've got a Romeo and Juliet story backdropped against one of the most reclusive nations on Earth. There's a freak tornado. Tornado, scented candles, Switzerland piano solos, hand-roasted coffee beans, and a 24-hour crawl through a hand-dug tunnel. Yep, that's right. Today we are talking about Crash Landing on You, the second highest rated drama in Korean TV history, and all of our K-drama gateways. Today we're going to do a deep dive into the two charismatic leads. We've got South Korean heiress, Seri, and her stoic North Korean soldier boy, Captain Ri. So strap on your parachute, folks, and let's see where the wind takes us. And please note this episode does contain spoilers, so proceed with caution. As we get started in Crash Landing on You, I guess I want to first address the fact that this was our gateway drama. Start of our addiction. The start of our addiction, exactly. And so I would love to hear a little bit from both of you on like how overall like you reacted to the show. And for me, just going into this segment, I think something that I wanted to touch on was the inspiration behind the story. And something that I read that I thought was really interesting was how the screenwriter was actually inspired by a true story. So in 2008, there was a South Korean actress, Jung Yang, who had to be rescued with three other people when their boat hit bad weather. And it forced them up into that hotly contested military boundary between North and South Korea, who are two nations still technically at war. And so I think for me, the fact that while overall this was like a fabulous love story that was super addictive and had that like sense of how could this ever possibly work out happily for anyone. It also felt like it was a pretty touching experience about like humanizing people who might be otherwise seen as your enemy. And it also felt like it was really like an exploration of the deep pain of division that's happening on the Korean peninsula. So I really look forward to discussing a little bit more of that North-South dynamic during our deep dive in the series. So as far as this being my gateway drama, one of the things that really hit me about this is how every single emotion is tied up in all of these 16 episodes. One moment I would be sobbing my eyes out. And then the next I would be rolling on the floor laughing because I can't believe how funny, you know, a scene is. And it absolutely blew my mind going back to, you know, you said you were researching about it. I think we might've brought this up in our first episode, the idea that Park Ji-un wrote this by herself, all 16 episodes. And that was mind boggling to me. What made this then sort of the gateway for me was in then comparing my reaction to this drama, where my immediate reaction was to watch it all over again because I loved it so much and there was nothing else that could fill that void for me, that emotional void. And it made me think about American television. And I think about these writers' rooms where we've got, you know, all these brains sort of coming together to put this story together. And here we have this one woman who weaved all of this intricate plot and the backgrounds of the characters together. And it absolutely blew my mind. And all I wanted was to see more of it. And so that was it for me. It was crash landing on you times two and then got my subscription to Vicky and here we are. 
<laughs> yeah. So you guys talked about the emotions. So I, and obviously we'll talk more about those. Um, I, I think my first reaction was how compulsively watchable it was. I could not stop. So I think about, I thought about how the episodes were constructed. So I hope I'm getting this author right, but I, I think it was Tiffany Rice and she's an, she's a American romance novelist. And I, I remember listening to her talk about how she constructs chapters. And she said that, you know, obviously when you write a scene, you have the buildup climax and then there's usually some sort of denouement is that how you say it denouement to the scene where there's like a letdown you know and that's that's how you construct a scene Uh, no matter you know what you're writing that that's that's pretty standard and she talked about how when you write that scene you think okay that's a chapter but she said what she does is she actually cuts that in half so she ends the chapter essentially right at the climax or right before the climax and that's how you get readers to read on and read on and read on and i think about that all the time when i'm writing i almost have my scene breaks in the middle of the chapter and I end my chapter on some sort of climax. And I think that that is what Chloe did, short Chloe for short, is I felt like I loved how it didn't feel, you know, a lot of times there's like cliffhangers at the end of episodes that kind of feel cheap. And I never really felt like they felt cheap. I really think that there was a proper buildup and then this climax and you just had to keep you had to keep watching because you had to know how that ended and I just found that to be smart and a proper way to construct a show that just makes you not be able to stop watching and so I just think that that was one of my first reactions was this was this is really smart who you know the woman who wrote this just brilliant yeah I think so um too and then going off of that compulsively watchable part of the show crash landing on you also has quite a few tropes that are really beloved by those of us who read and write in romance landia you know in particular a focus on things like forbidden love there was a fake fiance we had faded mates so just out of curiosity out of these three tropes if you must choose which one is your favorite catnip and why I chose faded mates for this. It was tough because I do I do love them all, but the faded mates idea for me, especially in this particular story, once the drama goes on and episode by episode, you keep seeing how Zhang Hyuk and Suri's lives have woven together so intricately. And I, I'm trying not to give any spoilers, but the fact that their lives are so woven together long before she crash lands in North Korea. And there were all these sort of gasping aha moments that I'm just like, yes, this is why you are meant to be together. Like, look at all of these things that you don't even know that you've already done for each other kind of thing. And that totally gets me. And to see that happen, because I usually read that, I read a lot of fantasy in my in my outside life, outside of K-dramas when I do read. I read a lot of fantasy and that's really typical in fantasy and much easier to do in fantasy because you can you can play around with, you know, paranormal type stuff and supernatural and magic and all of that. And to see this work so well in a contemporary setting also just blew me away. That's mm. a good point about the contemporary setting. You know, it actually didn't really, I don't know, it, it, it didn't really hit me until you you mentioned that. I was like, oh yeah, in fantasy, there's all these different things you can do, but you're right. To, the, the fact that they did a faded mate in a contemporary setting is pretty amazing. And I do think that that I'm seeing that seems to be kind of a common trope that happens over and over in contemporary K-drama, but I'm there for it every time. And yeah, for me, I think it's forbidden love. So that angst and melodrama can always just be injected directly into my veins. And I think part of it is that it just comes with so much extreme emotion. So as we touched on earlier today with Megan starting the show with like the puffy eyes, I feel like that's that's something like I'm looking for and I'm chasing that hit. And so I think that Forbidden Love always just comes with kind of those like big sobbing episodes as you watch. And at least that's what I'm looking for. And if I can get that, I'm a happy watcher. Yeah, my mom called right before we recorded this podcast and I, I still sounded terrible. Like my voice, I sounded like it's my mom. She knows what I sound like when I just, when I just finished crying. And she's like, why are you doing this? Why are you watching shows like this? And I said, but cause she goes, why are you watching shows that make you sad? And I was like, but see, that's not it. It doesn't make me sad. It's like a happy cry. It's like a hopeful cry. It's like a weird, a weird emotion that I can't describe. So that's why I want people to know is that it's not, it's not that it's sad. I would just say it's that it hurts so good. Yes, it hurts so good. Yes. (laughs) So I think, so I love Faded Mates. And I think in my writer life, 
I write Faded Mates because I write like it's like paranormal science fiction. So romance. So it's I think Faded Mates, as, as, as Amy said, is a type of in a non-contemporary setting is a little bit easier. But when I read or when I watch, I want forbidden love. And I think part of it is because I don't think as a writer, I am great at writing forbidden love. So like I want to see what writers who I consider to be more talented than me can do because you know like Leah said I want that like angst and I really want to I really as I'm watching even though I'm watching a romance if I if I it's actually a romance that ends in an HEA happily ever after even though I know it'll end that way I want to believe it won't and so that's one of the things I love about Forbidden Love and that's what I think Chloe did so incredibly I mean what a great forbidden love i remember i texted you guys and i was like this is so brilliant this is literally a brilliant plot with a great build-in conflict just so great because you're wondering the whole time how can this possibly end well how can they have a happily ever after Mm -hmm. because there seems like there is no possible way and so i know we'll get to the ending of it at at a different time but yeah i think that's part of that trope and this is like as forbidden as you can get like these are two Mm -hmm. people who live in two places that can't, you cannot meet. Oh, so good. Gosh. Every time I think about it, I'm just like, why didn't I, not that why didn't I write this, but why can't I write something like this? Like, oh, I'm so jealous. And I think that's where as an author, I appreciate because I'm having the emotional experience as a viewer, but also there's a part of me that in the back of my mind the whole time is kind of like, is the, like, is this writer really going to pull off this story or is it all just going to fall apart? And in this case, like the slow clap, because I felt <laughs> by the end, I was like, this all held like and that's just just such a joy I think from like a craft perspective when you see how it all comes together and it worked and so you got that emotional roller coaster and you didn't have like this like flat letdown going back to like the writing aspect and you know circling nicely into the segue on book recommendations you know given that we touched on forbidden love and faded mates as preferred tropes do you you all have a book recommendation that you could make that kind of fits within these tropes. So not crash landing on you related, but just something that if people are seeking that same kind of emotional experience. So I think I'm going to quickly brand myself here as the the teen teen novel recommendation podcast. You're good at it because well, and, and, you know, I'll preface it with, I taught high school English for 13 years. I was a high school librarian for six years before we started this. So it's kind of ingrained in me and I love reading it. So I will go to fantasy now for my faded mates. It's a series because fantasy usually is. And it is the Daughter of Smoke and Bone series by Lainey Taylor. And it was one of those things where I had a reaction just like Chloe when I finished. And I was like, I want to be this author when I grow up because the way that these two characters were weaved together. Their names are Karu and Akiva. And it is sort of an angels and demons kind of love story. But it's this idea of angels have always pictured these quote unquote monsters called Chimera as the bad guys. And the Chimera have always viewed the angels as bad guys. And it is a parallel universe love story. It is, I mean, it's it's everything. And I'll give away too much if I say anything more about it being Faded Mates, but it's just absolutely spectacular. It carries through three books so brilliantly and weaves it all together and just leaves you still wanting more at the end. And these are these are some long books too. And I still wanted more. So yeah, fantasy, Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor. Absolutely brilliant. And for me, uh going to Forbidden Love, a really fun forbidden love that I read that hit me in the feelings, but it didn't quite provide like I wasn't like completely angst ridden, but I was really hooked by the concept was red, white and royal blue by Casey McQuiston. And it had a high concept kind of that I appreciated that felt similar to crash landing on you, which had like the North and South Korean polarization. And that in this case, it was kind of just another like national divide, not quite so dangerous, like, but the stakes were that we have Alex, who's the first son of the President of the United States living in the White House, he has like a long term nemesis in Prince Henry, who is a Prince of Wales. So there's kind of like a fun across the pond, like, enemies to lovers, but also kind of forbidden love because, you know, there's a lot of like geopolitical implications mixed up in that. So while we don't have like a DMZ separating them with like razor wire and guards, it just had that kind of like, how could this ever work out quality, yet very lovable leads. And so again, that's Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. My forbidden love is 
A Seditious Affair by K.J. Charles. And this is a historical gay romance set in 1800s Britain. And it is, the, the stakes are very high because first of all, it's a gay relationship, which was illegal. So if they would be caught in intimacy, they would be arrested. But there's a whole nother layer on top of it. So essentially the two characters are Silas and Dom and they meet in secret and they actually don't really know much about the other person they pretty much just meet to have an affair and it's also a very very sexy book so just to be forewarned but silas is a radical bookseller and an underground pamphleteer so he is against he's trying to he's against the tory government whereas dom is an agent of homeland security and he's pursuing seditionists that's so they're literally you know as at odds with each other but and I, I I love it because well they're they're extremely compatible sexually and they really develop a love for each other, but there's also a lot of you know political discussions, but in a way that really rang true to me and fair and it's just but as you can see it's it's a, like a double layer of forbidden love. It's just a really really fantastic book and actually pretty much everything KJ Charles writes is a really fantastic. She writes a lot of forbidden love and fantastic writer, so I highly recommend. But anyway, this is a seditious affair by KJ Charles. And now it's time for our favorite segment, our K recommendation of the week. So the first step in the, you know, classic 10-step Korean skincare routine is a cleansing balm. And the one I am recommending today, it's from a brand called And Then I Met You, and it's the Living Cleansing Balm. And Then I Met You is kind of the breakout hit that is exclusive to Soko Glam, which is an online retailer. And it's developed by the founder of that website, Charlotte Cho. So basically the theory is is that like you wash your face twice before doing anything else to it and with the cleansing balm it does this like really nice job of getting away like all the oil-based impurities that can build up during the day like sunscreen and makeup and i don't know how but it doesn't really leave behind an oily residue and the double cleaning method is just as it sounds so you wash your face first with that oil-based cleanser and then later you follow it up with a water-based cleanser but that first step is really meant to like draw out any kind of oil-based impurity while the second step cleanses is kind of like the sweat and dirt, which sounds really gross, but kind of like more of like the water-based impurity. So this isn't like a gimmick to buy more products and to like fill up your bathroom, but I do feel like that two-step cleansing process really has been like a game changer to me and like making me feel very fresh-faced and it's cleansing without drying. So my recommendation is the Living Cleansing Balm from the Then I Met You line, and you can get it on Soko Glam. Let's talk about Captain Ree, and specifically, let's talk about whether or not he is the perfect alpha, or as we lovingly like to call someone, an alpha hole. But we first have to talk about what the difference is between alpha and alpha hole. So let's start with you two. How about if you tell me some of your definitions of alpha versus alpha hole? I love this discussion. It's very common in Romance Landia for authors who are, who are in that community. Because I do think sometimes the alphas it can get a bad rap because I think there are a lot of alpha holes in uh, romance. I hate saying that word, alpha holes. But I, my biggest, so obviously an alpha is a leader. I think that's, that's you know, a, a given. And I think he's a, usually a charismatic leader. And usually my my first thought is that an alpha hole uses his charisma to benefit himself, whereas an alpha benefits his friends, his crew, and his family and the love of his life. And that is why I think Captain Ree is absolutely an alpha, because he's extremely selfless and he's loyal and he has he sacrificed so much throughout the whole series for either his men or his woman. And yeah, I love this conversation because I've always I felt like really tried to like advocate for alphas in romance. And I do think that alpha holes, which I really like that word, actually, I feel <laughs> like alpha holes do such a disservice to the beauty that is the alpha. And for me, I think that Something that Captain Ree really personifies to me is that vulnerability, especially vulnerability to like his woman, his partner. And it's that sense of being strong enough to show emotion. And so I think that that to me is kind of like the mar hallmark of a really good alpha is that yes, they can be a like a confident leader and they're competent and they're take charge. 
but when it comes to their romantic partner, they are happy to to really like expose their soft little underbelly as they start to fall in love. And I think that that process is always just like a real joy to write and to watch as a viewer. I think that the whole alpha versus alpha whole thing for me, when I was early in my not just romance writing, but also romance reading days is that I I felt like there were some authors who didn't know that you could be an alpha without being an alpha hole. You know what I mean? And and I'm not like faulting anybody or anything like that. And I think that gave me a preconceived notion of what an alpha was early in the game until I started seeing more vulnerable alphas. And absolutely, that is what I love about K-drama in general. Like we're talking about Captain Ree, but I have seen it again and again in all the subsequent K-dramas that I've watched is that we have this man who is a true and born leader, but is not afraid to show vulnerability. And I think that's so, so attractive and sexy. And one of the biggest reasons why I fell for, you know, Hyun Bin in this role is the way that he was able to be both that born leader and also not at all afraid to shed a tear or several when something happened to somebody he loved. And it's something about being masculine without toxic masculinity. And I feel like, again, you can kind of veer off in like, sometimes I think in plotting stories where you're like, oh, I want to have this like very like alpha and then you go into the alpha hole, but like you end up basically just kind of acting like an ode to toxic masculinity of somebody that's going to, you know, not have like, yes, they may have like passionate love towards their romantic partner but in a way that feels just problematic over and over and like yes you can overlook it sometimes because you know you're enjoying the story or whatever and like the suspension of disbelief but I think more and more like a as I get older and b as like I get wiser I just enjoy so much more when I feel like you know we get to have that alpha package but then the whole time I'm like you know but this is like a good person (laughs) Right. And the an alpha package that's who that's also a good partner. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm thirty-seven, so I'm not really into just like an alpha hole who's gonna like defend me in a I don't know, if like some guy touches my butt in a bar. Like I don't care about that anymore. I want a man now who's has a job and can provide for my family and I, I just think about a partner and are you a good person do you donate to charity you know what i mean that kind of thing and i that so (laughs) donate to charity he's like (laughs) and now watch me make my annual contribution to save the turtles and i'm like yes so hot (laughs) it is hot actually i think that could be a whole like romance thing like our philanthropic romance hero (laughs) i'm just gonna say a man who can shed a tear and show philanthropy yep (laughs) There we go. I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I know that was a random thing to say, but you know what I mean? I just, I I want a partner. And Mm -hmm. that's where I felt, honestly, when I was watching it, I'm like, he would make such a good husband, like such a good husband. And that's what made him attractive to me as an alpha. My Mm -hmm. husband. He he would make such a good husband for me. For me, right. (laughs) Right. So that brings us to a discussion question that I have for you and for myself as well, but I'll let you two go first. What is one of your favorite over-the-top Captain Ree moments of him showing that alphaness, but also that vulnerability? Okay, I know this is like skipping ahead in the show, but I I have to talk about the tunnel. I got to talk about the tunnel because I can't, I can't handle it. I... I remember getting to that scene and rewinding because I wasn't sure if I read the translation correctly and then texting you guys immediately. So the tunnel is obviously this is going to be a spoiler. Spoil away. Yeah. So the, the tunnel situation is she, Seri is in South Korea and there is a threat to her life. Basically, there's an enemy who traveled to South Korea to harm her and Captain Ree finds out and he has to save her. So he has to travel to South Korea and the only way. He can get there. I can't. I can't say that. I mean, is he has to crawl twenty hours through a tunnel, no rest, no food or drink, just cr- army crawl for twenty hours. <laughs> and, it's, and it's literally in the show that way. I mean, they say like no rest, and the best part is he like pops out in South Korea on like a beach, and he doesn't look dirty. It's like hair's not out of place. <laughs> he has like it's one like- artful little scratch. <laughs> And it's just, 
it's it's my honestly so you know i've said before like i love the i love like the bonkers so that was the part where i was like a soul like absolutely this show is going down in history as one of my favorites i love the tunnel yeah i the tunnel of love i have a lot of <laughs> for that and <laughs> yeah again like spoiler alert here but i think for me like one time that really like made me sit up was actually pre-tunnel of love and that is that was the motorcycle of hotness oh and my so- god <laughs> the best yes. Yeah. So basically like she's being like taken and he kind of like disappeared. This is one nice thing that happens in K-dramas. You start to be like, oh, what happened to like so-and-so? The characters kind of like dropped out of the story. And then like you get like the next episode that's like, meanwhile, behind the scenes, they were putting all the pieces together to like execute this amazing rescue. And so basically he just rescues her on a motorcycle. And it doesn't sound like much of anything like meh, motorcycle. The whole thing is just like chef's kiss ultra sexy competent military fatigues coming after the woman he loves he's gonna save the day there's a shootout it's he takes a bullet and (laughs) it's just the whole thing it's just like a completely perfect little scene of like everything that makes him a wonderful man his hair blowing we have his hair blowing like because he loses the helmet and the hair is blowing oh yeah how many times how many times have we sent each other that gif so that we can see it over and over again. It is yes. it's a single beauty. It I do watch, and I use the word GIF, FYI, but <laughs> I watch that GIF um, over and over. over. <laughs> and, he, and he's like shooting the gun like to the side. You know, like, it's just so great. It's so, oh, yeah. That is my gun sound. <laughs> okay, um, Amy. So those are, those are two of my absolute favorites. And those are so physically over the top and just gorgeous. And like this strong, gorgeous man doing this for his woman. And mine that I'm going to share is a little less physical, but more just so super heartfelt. And that was the year of texts. This is when we're towards the end here and Captain Ree and his men are going to be sent back to North Korea. They're going to be traded for some South Korean prisoners who are there and they're going to be traded at the border. And once that happens, we don't know if Jean Hook and Suri will ever see each other again. And to help her get through the time that he is gone, he pre-programs a year of texts for her. She starts getting these texts. And I think the first one was, you know, are you, are you still awake or are you sleeping or something like that? And these daily texts from him almost. So she still had him in her life the whole first year that they were apart. Spoiler, they're apart for a while at the end. But the whole first year that they were apart, he was still there. And it was just absolutely gorgeous. And for me, that was that alpha vulnerability that is just so, so attractive. And I cried a lot from that. Yeah. Reminding her to eat, to drink, to celebrate, to be social. To talk to her plant. Yep. That he left her. Oh, so beautiful. I need to go watch again. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, these are great examples of the difference between alpha and alpha hole. And it is that whole difference between selfish and selfless. And, you know, Leah, that you brought up the whole idea of toxic masculinity does not exist for a K-drama alpha like Captain Ree. So another question, Captain Ree always says, I'm fine, even when he is clearly not like stepping on a landmine in the DMZ. How do you think his background as a North Korean citizen, his family played into that very relatable coping mechanism of always saying I'm fine? And how does his relationship with Suri challenge that? I feel like saying I'm fine is just like such a relatable thing for all of us. Whenever I hear someone say I'm fine, to me, it always feels like a mask covering up real emotions under the surface because saying I'm fine is a lot easier and safer to say than admitting any true feelings. So for me, I felt like with him, it came from, I don't know if fear's the best word, but like a reluctance to appear weak. But also I felt like he was a character that had had to bottle everything up to basically do his duty to his family and to his country that you know if he admitted he was anything less than fine then my little baby boo is going to crack like a broken vase so he had to like keep keep that all together inside of him and I felt like that I'm fine facade shifted really pivotally (laughs) when he took Sari back to the DMZ to get her back to South Korea 
And, you know, they get to the border, which is like, you know, you don't cross the border. And he was very much like, I can't cross the border. And then like, she takes that step over. And then he says that really romantic, that one step should be okay. And like, you see that boot come down across the line. And he kind of like goes and grabs her for that one last kiss. And to me, I felt like, you know, it was that one small step for man, but one giant step for emotional character growth and, you know, kind of turning away from that I am fine crutch and like moving and walking towards claiming a future that brought, you know, a much deeper sense of joy and fulfillment. So I also think to a degree, he said, I'm fine because I don't know if he thought that his feelings mattered in a way. I don't know if he thought anyone cared about his feelings in a way that he had to bother expressing them. And I think Sari showed him that his feelings do matter. And I think that is kind of when he started to really be emotional with her. When I think she wanted to get a reaction out of him sometimes. And when he didn't give it, it was frustrating for her. So I think when he did react and he admitted, he would admit like, I'm not fine or yes, I'm upset or whatever. I think that was an acknowledgement that his feelings matter and Sari cared. And that's one thing I loved about the change in him is that he was like, oh, you know, it does matter how I feel. I, I feel like going back to, you know, this idea of the mindset of growing up as a North Korean and this sort of collective we type of thing, and that you sacrifice the self. And he was so used to sacrifice, right? He sacrificed his dream of being a concert pianist when his brother was killed, and he had to follow in his brother's footsteps and be the son who's in the army, because, you know, his father is a very high ranking political official in the army there. And then again, when he's resigned to marry Sayodan, because that's what his family and her family wants and he was promised to marry her and he wasn't going to break that promise of his own volition and it's this idea of sacrifice and this idea of my happiness doesn't matter kind of going to what you're talking about Megan this idea that my happiness doesn't matter and then he meets Sari and when we start seeing that whole faded mates thing with them and how their lives have intertwined and him sort of realizing maybe I do deserve this happiness maybe it's okay for me to want this because of how much this person has been impactful in my life and how much I've been impactful in her life, that maybe this is important. And even if it feels a little bit selfish, that it's important and it's okay. Sonali Dev is another amazingly talented romance novelist. And I remember one time I listened to her talk on a panel and she said, romance isn't always about the actual love story between the two leads. And sometimes it's about one lead or both leads realizing that they deserve love. And that is kind of how I feel about Captain Ree and Sari, to be honest, is that they realize that they both deserve love. I really like that. She's really smart. If anyone has a chance to listen to Sonali Dev talk on a panel, she's she's brilliant. But I and to be honest, I think about that a lot as I write. I think mm. about I think about those words and about my characters realizing they, they deserve to be happy. Well, in a nice segue from characters deserving to be happy, it's been confirmed that in real life, Hyun Bin, who plays Captain Rhee, and Son Ye Jin, who plays Yoon Seri, are in a real life relationship, which is really fun. And I'm just curious how that changes, or if it does change, how you regard the show and why. I don't think it really changes the show for me. I mean, I love the ending of the show. I think the ending of the show fits the situation and that it's more of a happily for now. But in my heart of hearts, I do believe that Captain Rhee and Yoon Suri find their way to be more permanently together in the end. And I think that's a little bit, you know, it makes their real life relationship, I guess, a little bit sort of an icing on the cake. But I will say that as happy as it makes me to see them together in real life, I have very much separated the characters from the real people. But I still, I still have this you know, sort of yearning in my heart for Jung Hyuk and Seri to find their permanent happily ever after somewhere in the future. And I believe it happens. It's just not now. I believe it happens too. And, you know, I, I kind of feel, I actually, like, I was really happy to see them together just because I think they're a great actor and actress, but I have separated them because I've seen some interviews with them and they're very much not their characters. They're clearly really talented and I love their, the characterization of both of them. But like Hyun Bin is like super smiley in interviews, you know? He's always smiling. Just seems happy to be there. I mean, he seems like the opposite of. <laughs> you sound like a little Kansas farm boy. Like, yeah. oh, I'm just so happy. Just happy to be here. <laughs> and so he just he doesn't strike me at all as Captain Reed. So I have separated them. And I will say, if the news comes out that they broke up, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me. <laughs> I don't want to know. Okay, don't want to know. 
And I think this is where like a K-drama is kind of interesting to me in terms of there's like actors because you know when we approach books like they're characters they're fictional completely and so in this case yeah I think that I like to kind of keep my character bubble and it is really sweet and I felt like they had like that charismatic chemistry that felt really palpable in the show but yeah for me it's really the actors are fantastic and talented but the characters are really you know like I'm ride or die with the fictional characters so before we close out our discussion of Hyun Bin's character, Captain Ri Jong-hook, I think the most important question is, do you prefer Captain Ri with North Korean hair or South Korean hair? <laughs> I just I when they changed his hair, I'm pretty sure I texted you guys immediately. I said, "Oh my god. Finally." So, for me, it's the South Korean hair, the hair. I actually think I don't know, this might be a translation cuz just because of my my k-pop fandom the they always talk about you know do you prefer your hair down or up so that seems like the translation so i like his hair up the suit turned him into like completely new levels of hot this was a controversial choice but (laughs) i i'm team north korea here i really like that bowl cut (laughs) and i love the military fatigues like the whole but just the bull cut, like, I don't know what it was, but it made him look like slightly dorky. And that was very endearing to me. And so obviously, yes, when he flips that hair back and does like his suit montage in Seoul, he's objectively a gorgeous man. But the bull cut, I just, that bull cut does all sorts of things to me. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to go back with Megan here and I'm going to go with the South Korean hair, hair up. But whereas you prefer the suit, I'm going to go with Hair up, turtleneck, trench coat. I like hate turtlenecks, but for some reason, Captain Ree looked great in a turtleneck. It's I'm a thing. Like, it's, how... it's a thing with with Korean men. I think it is. Like... Yeah, the K the K drama, like actor and the turtleneck, is a match made in visual heaven. <laughs> you just finished Goblin. Like, there's turtlenecks in Goblin. Like turtlenecks everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Yep. I just don't. I don't like them for me. That's, that's okay. You don't most... have to wear them. To I mean, I don't look like I don't look like Yunbin in one. So I really like turtlenecks. I don't know if I look good in one or not, but I I have quite a few, I have a repertoire of turtlenecks, but I do not have a bull cut. So <laughs> that can be remedied. It could, but I don't think I could pull off. The, well, I could probably pull off the dorky, not the cute, hot though. <laughs> and now we get into Seri, the woman, the myth, the legend. Many K-dramas seem to lean in hard on a Cinderella trope where the heroine is poor or otherwise lacking in social power compared to a rich, powerful hero. But in Chloe, Sari might be the quintessential damsel in distress, but she's also a Chabal archetype, heiress to a South Korean conglomerate, as well as a successful entrepreneur being a CEO of a popular skincare line, Sari's Choice. So she's also portrayed as a similar age to Reed Young-hook and more worldly and experienced with the opposite sex. Additionally, she's shown struggling with mental health and self-worth issues. All in all, she's a thoughtful and well-rounded K-drama heroine who doesn't get easily pigeonholed into stereotypes. So what's one aspect of Yoon-Seri's arc that you noticed and appreciated from a feminist perspective? So going to that Cinderella trope type thing, there's always a makeover for the Cinderella woman, right? So mm. I love the reverse makeover here, which we were just talking about with the hair and the suit and everything. And and the fact that that Captain Rhee is totally down for it, right? She's like, we're going to turn you into a South Korean now that you're here. And she takes him suit shopping and takes him to get his hair done. And I, I just absolutely love sort of flipping that trope on its head and having the guy be the one to get the makeover and thoroughly enjoying watching it happen. It was fun just from like a female gaze perspective and it just had like the rom-com vibe, but I really appreciated it that it was the man playing dress up. And I think for me, I really loved how Sari respected her partner's life and decisions. So this is going to be an opportunity that I just want to put out that I'm going to do some spoilers here. So fast forward 30 seconds. This is your warning. (laughs) Okay, if you're still with me, I felt like Crash Landing on You has caught a little bit of flack for having, it has a happy ending, but, but you know, it's like the two weeks that together per year that they cobble together. 
But I love that that we have a heroine that like she loves him enough that she doesn't want to ask him to ruin his family's life or probably put their lives in danger if he defected to be with her. And so I think that there's like a bittersweet ending. And again, pulling from Goblin, like sad love, because that was like one of my favorite things in Goblin was that talking about sad love. And I felt like, yeah, there's a bittersweetness that they have only this limited time together. But I also feel like by the end, she has so much fulfillment in so many areas of her life. Like I feel like she has gone from like being this corporate lone wolf that makes her team work on Christmas Eve and is kind of like that Scrooge stereotype to a person who enjoys surrounding herself with, you know, a very warm cadre of coworkers who love and respect her professionally, but also as a friend. So I felt like, you know, she has this like very rich, well-rounded life. And then she has this love. And even if it's not present physically in her life every second, like it's with her in her heart all the time. I love that. First of all, I love both of what you said. So I actually, so we're going to talk about more about Sayodan in the next episode. But one thing I appreciated is that the plot never really pitted her against Sayodan, who is Captain Ree's fiance. I mean, there was some tension there and that was part of the plot, but they were never really pitted against each other and they were never really nasty to each other. And I actually thought that plot line completely shifted later in a way that I didn't expect. I thought it was going to be pretty stereotypical and it didn't. And I appreciated that from a feminist perspective because... I didn't feel like it was just two women battling over a man. I don't think either of them saw each other as the issue ever on why they couldn't achieve their happiness. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's also like the fact that there was an arranged marriage component as part of Seodan's like relationship with Captain Ree, even though she obviously had feelings for him. Mm-hmm. That played a big aspect into it. But yeah, I like that they didn't have they didn't like degrade the women into having these kind of stereotypical cat fights over the man. So Yunsuri certainly wasn't a slouch when it came to being a romantic partner. So what was a scene where her actions really hit you in the feels? For me, it started early on with some of the subtleties of her showing her feelings for Captain Ree. And that was, I think this was the first time, the first time she thought she was escaping back to South Korea and was leaving. And she was giving out the awards to all of his men and had handing them all different awards. And she gets to the end and she doesn't have an award for him. And he quite literally stomps off pouts because she didn't have anything for him, but she wasn't going to say anything and he wasn't going to say anything. And then once she has him alone, she takes him outside to show him, here's the special parting gift that I got for you. And it was a tomato plant. And she teaches him that plants need you to connect with them for them to grow and teaches him that he needs to tell the tomato plant 10 nice things every day for the plant to grow. And it hit me in the feels much later in the show when you see how that kind of framed the rest of their relationship. And it actually took me my second watching for Tomato Cultivator, the gaming name, to click. And it didn't click the first time. So that's another cute little thing there. But yeah, the the whole plant talking thing and how that came back at the end, that just, that did it for me. Yeah, I adore everything about that plant plot line and the fact that it kept kind of coming up and it was woven into their love story I'm like oh my gosh like we all want something like that like that's the thing when I write I try to leave little inside jokes for my readers so and then you bring it up at the end and then they they really readers love that they really feel like a part of the book in a way and that's what I thought that was so great about that whole tomato plant thing but anyway as for me i really loved when her feelings came out in anger that's one of my favorite characterizations ever is when a character has so many feelings and they don't really know how to express it they just get mad and so i kind of loved when he would put himself in harm's way and she would get angry with him or if he wasn't taking care of himself or something like that i i just i just love when she kind of got mad and that's how it her feelings manifested yeah i i always like it when you know the anger masks like you know, their worry and fear. That's always fun. And I think when this was just like a little gesture, but it was really sweet to me. And I felt like it meant a lot to his character is when she spelled out the I love you, Zhang Hyuk, in like his books in his bedroom by using like parts of the syllables of Hangul altogether. And to me, it just was like a really sweet, thoughtful thing. Plus, it was fun because You know, I know that Amy and I are both trying to like teach ourselves the Korean alphabet and like learn Hangul a little bit. So it was fun to like go back and try to like piece that out myself as a student. But also just that idea of like books and romance combined together 
because you know what? I actually forgot that. about that until you brought it up. I forgot all about the book thing. Oh, mm. I love it. And then when um, he did it, and then when he does it at the end, and she's oh. like, he's not original. I know. <laughs> and she loved it. She's so she's so great. She was so funny. So Yunsuri's relationship with ensemble characters, which was one of my favorite parts about the whole show, from the women in the village to the North Korean soldiers to the employees in her company, they all evolved through the show. So how did her relationship with Captain Ree impact the rest of her life when it came to those relationships? So what I really loved is, and we've talked about this already, is this idea that before she crash landed, she was this total lone wolf, and she kept everybody at a distance. And and it made sense because as you learn throughout the show, she has abandonment issues and, and rightfully so. But I love that towards the end when they were separated and he left her the year, the year's worth of texts that he wanted her to live the way that she lived when she was in North Korea, which was surrounded by people and being happy even without having everything that she wanted in her life, meaning him. And the fact that this whole sort of ensemble and and her being part of that ensemble in North Korea, I think that bled over then into her life. And he told her, don't eat by yourself. You know, don't work late. Don't be alone. Like, enjoy yourself, enjoy your life. And she could have wallowed when he left and she didn't. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I thought that was a big thing that she learned from being surrounded by all those people. And that even though she didn't have the most important person in her life at that time that she was able to still thrive. And I don't think that would have happened had she not been a part of this sort of group love type of mentality that she learned from being with him and his men and the the village women. That kind of made me think what you were saying, that she could have wallowed, but she didn't. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that she, even though she wasn't with him, she still knew she was loved. And she often didn't because we talk about how, you know, her relationship with her family, we didn't even really get into that, but it was, it was strained and her, you know, she had abandonment issues because of her stepmom and things like that. But she knew she was loved. And I felt like because of that, she was able to love her life more. It's not that she necessarily needed him there. She just needed to know that someone loved her. And that helped her realize that she deserved to be happy in all aspects of her life. And Megan, something that, you know, you haven't touched on yet today, but that you have in other conversations that I like is how, you know, she had that kind of persona of being the picky princess and that played like a role to her. And I kind of almost felt like that was an I'm fine, like how we had Captain Marie with his I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. She was the picky princess and that let her hide behind kind of that image of, you know, she only takes three bites of food at a restaurant and, you know, she's really high maintenance and like prickly and unapproachable. And I loved at one point, when I'm digressing a little bit, but I don't care because this is, I feel like is important when she's talking about how she is the picky princess and he, Captain Ree is like in his mind, like mulling over like all the times of her, like hardly enjoying her meals or doing everything that like shows that like, really that's not who she is at all. That's just like who she wants the world to see who she is. Yeah. Essentially that was her like defense mechanism yeah. was being the picky princess and she didn't have to be with, with Captain Ree. She could be herself. He's like, you're always eating, you know, when they're in North Korea, she's like, she wasn't picky at all. She was always eating. She was always, yeah, she, she just, she adapted so well. And I think it was because going back to that whole, like being loved thing, there was that whole immediate, almost immediate connection between the two of them, which goes back years to their, their run-ins earlier in their lives. But there is that sort of feeling of it's okay to be me. Like I feel safe. And I think that was a huge part of it. I don't want to end this conversation without addressing what I felt like was one of my favorite friendships in the show. And that was the one that was between Yoon Seri and the North Korean soldier, Hyochi Su, who <laughs> I just loved their like enemies to friends. Like I felt like they started off as like very much at odds with each other. He did shoot at her. Yeah. <laughs> and then by the end, I felt like, you know, he couldn't have been like a more steadfast buddy for her and I really enjoyed how like and I thought that was really special for like the Captain Reed character as well in that you know not only did she love him but she truly loved his little puppies his soldiers that he was with all the time and you know those were you know you could tell that they were so important to him and how loyal he was to them and so to see her have such an authentic and close friendship with all of those young soldiers i think really i don't it just really it was moving <laughs> well i agree well i also think uh, you know back to the fact that she respected his life decisions she respected his men and 
in she did. She respected his men. She respected the military of North Korea. She res- and in respecting them, she respected him. Next week, we'll be back with the second half of our crash landing on you deep dive. We'll be looking at the scene-stealing second romantic lead, Seo Dan and Jung Se-jun, talking about fabulous ensemble characters and how they helped make the show shine and how Chloe goes way deeper into our universal human condition than one might expect at face value. But for now, what I would love to do is hear what show are you all currently watching? I am, on Leah's recommendation, watching Her Private Life with... Yes, 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 with Kim J. Wook and Park Min Young, and I am on episode 13, so I, I hadn't even started the show uh, last recording, and I'm super, super excited to almost be done with this one because I love it so much, but I'm sad for it to almost be over because I am literally just smiling ear to ear every episode. It is just one of the most delightful rom-coms, and I love seeing Kim J. Wook in a lead after him being a small part, but a very memorable small part in Coffee Prince that I absolutely loved. That's on my list for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I want to even plug it one more time, Her Private Life. I feel like I don't see it get the love I feel like it deserves. As we all know, I just finished Goblin. Oh, so I need something that's not going to dehydrate me like Goblin did. I mean, I'm like trying to drink a lot of water while we're talking because I'm so, (laughs) I cried so much today. So I am going to watch Touch Your Heart mainly because it has the same, it has the leads as the secondary leads in Goblin. So I'm very excited about it. I've heard good things and I will probably end up starting it tonight or tomorrow. Woohoo! And yeah, I am about a little less than halfway into Touch Your Heart. And I do think it's a fun office romance. And the premise is kind of like there's a top actress who has a career damaging scandal and it's left her jobless for a couple of years. And she has the opportunity to get the starring role in a hot new legal K-drama. But she has a little problem, which is that she's notorious for not acting super great. And so the writer for the show actually has some clout and says, look, if you're going to be in this show, we're going to need you to get, you know, get some experience and like you can't phone this role in. So she agrees to go work at a law firm as a legal secretary for three months. And obviously she's assigned to Lee Dong-wook, who plays the workaholic, aloof and very dreamy lawyer. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, that's it for this week, everybody. So should we say it? Kamsamnida. Thank you for listening to Afternoona Delight. Make sure to subscribe for more great K-Romance conversation. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Afternoona Delight Podcast for more information on our podcast, behind-the-scenes photos, and of course, pics of our favorite opas and unis. Annyeong! Annyeong!